this is episode 54 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Pam Smith. Uh, she currently works as a professor of speech pathology at Bloomsburg University. She graduated with her bachelor's from Cutstown University, her master's from Ohio University, and her PhD from Temple University. She's worked in acute care, acute rehab, sniff setting, outpatient, home health, and she's worked in higher education for 17 years and is starting year 15 at Bloomsburg. She teaches courses in aphasia, cognitive-based disorders, dysphagia, where she actually teaches two dysphagia courses, psycholinguistics, and coordinates the externship placements. She is a member of SIG-15 on the coordinating committee, SIG-13, SIG-2, and SIG-10. She is a member of the PISHA board, the Pennsylvania State Hearing Association, and is vice president for public information and professional communication. And she is a member of the Northeastern Speech-Language Hearing Association of Pennsylvania, where she is on the council and the chair of the scholarship committee. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I feel like it's been a little while since I've talked mindlessly into my microphone. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, I hope everyone had a great, great, great summer. I know it's like Labor Day means summer's over, although it's still 92 degrees out. But hope everybody's kids are getting back into school and getting back into the swing of things. I feel like everyone's kind of buckling down and getting back into work mode here. Um but yeah, a couple, couple big announcements. I, I love this episode today with Dr. Pam Smith. She's just so wonderful. If any of you guys know her, she's great. She's wonderful. Um, she and I discussed kind of a lot of just a, a lot of different ways to pragmatically speak with your colleagues and your administrators and how you really have to meet them halfway. And um, I know that I've, I actually wrote a four-part blog post kind of about this last year. So if anyone really wants to dig into this more, um, if you go to my blog, mobiledysphagiadiagnostics.com forward slash blog, uh, there you'll find the four-part series on how to advocate for instrumentation in your facility. But we do cover lots of other things in this episode too, but that's just one thing that as I was listening to it back, I was like, oh, I, this totally falls in line with that blog post that I wrote. So wanted to mention that. And also, it is September, which means uh, the MedBridge promo is back. So, uh, there's a lot of questions. Usually, MedBridge only offers that free premium upgrade for $95 for first-time MedBridge members. However, you guys bombarded my email and... Uh, Facebook messages over the last few weeks, and I was able to talk to them, and they are going to honor that for renewals as well. So I know so many of you got so much value out of the MedBridge, MedBridge membership, as I do too. I, I just love, I turn that on, listen to it while I'm driving and long trips and while I'm out doing my mobile fees, and, and I just love that we get to hear from a lot of these great researchers in the field. So if you are interested in signing up for a MedBridge membership or renewing your MedBridge membership, it's just promo code SYP. 
and you get the free premium upgrade for 95 bucks for one full calendar year from when you start. So you go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP. What's the perks of Medbridge? Well, you get unlimited CEUs. So they have tons and tons of fantastic lectures. I don't even want to call them lectures because they're not boring lectures, but videos from various researchers, professors, expert clinicians in our field about lots of different topics, aphasia, dysphagia, voice. Uh, We have some fantastic researchers on there. Um, So really good information. And then besides the unlimited CEUs that you get, they also have a home exercise builder, which I think is fantastic. And you can just go right in, log right in, Click which exercises you want to assign to your patient, print it out, and there also is a patient portal where the patient can log in from home and see what you've assigned to them. So really interactive for both you and your patient. Uh, There is also patient handouts that explain things like what is aspiration pneumonia, um, things like that. And you also get access to the mobile app. So you get for $95 for one full calendar year, you get unlimited CEUs. Uh, You get access to the patient education, the patient handouts, the home exercise builder, and also the patient portal. So uh, if you are interested in signing up, you can go to medbridgeeducation.com, use promo code SYP, or you can just go to medbridgeeducation.com forward slash SYP. That'll bring you right to the homepage for this podcast. Um, And just to let you know, I am an affiliate for them, so I do get a small commission off every membership that goes right back into keeping this wonderful podcast going. So uh, just wanted to let you guys know about that. And then we, I've also been getting a lot of messages about when we are going to reopen enrollment for the medical SLP solution. That is going to be in October. We don't have a specific date yet. Our new website is rolling out any day now, which is very exciting. Uh, So once we get our bearings with the new website, because it's been overwhelmingly successful and we've had way more people join than our old little website could handle. So we have a new website coming out as soon as that's up and running and I love it. And yeah, then we will reopen enrollment. So it should be sometime in October, but you can't go to www.medslpsolution.com to get on the waiting list. So you will be notified as soon as that reopens. So I think that's all I have. Happy September, everyone. It's a season of fall and pumpkin spice lattes, which I love. So yes, hopefully you enjoy. Um, I did end up splitting this conversation with Pam into two parts because it was really good. So uh, this is part one, and next week we will hear part two. Hi, Pam. Hey, Teresa. How are you? I am well, thank you. You're wonderful this morning. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. (laughs) It's been a little bit of a hectic juggle, struggle, trying to get us both to use, figure out the technology. (laughs) So thank you for your patience, Pam, but we're here. Um, So I said a little bit about you in the beginning, but if you want to tell people who you are. Uh, Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I'm a professor at Bloomsburg University, which is in Pennsylvania. Uh, A lot of people, when tell them that you're at Bloomsburg University, they have no idea where that is. Um, And so we're about halfway between Penn State and New Jersey. Um, so people usually know where they are. We are a small university. We are a clinical training program. And my responsibilities at the university are really teaching most of the adult medically oriented content. I also teach psycholinguistics to undergrads. So I kind of consider myself a generalist, uh, which makes it, you know, my approach on things is a little bit different. I don't have the, um, 
the depth of some of the research experience that many of my colleagues in the dysphagia profession have. Uh, we do research at our university, so I'm researching things in dysphagia, but I'm also researching things in cognition and linguistics. And so I, I try to keep a, a wide base of the areas so I'm current on everything I teach. And so it makes my approach a little bit more, take a step back, be holistic, let's look at the big picture. Um, and for me, that's been quite helpful in trying to teach students yeah. because they really need that more holistic approach because they don't get a dysphagia case, they get a patient. Right. And we're not just trying to rehabilitate a swallow, although we are, we're trying to help rehabilitate a patient who yes. is in a certain place and has a certain history and has wants and likes and dislikes and things like that. So, so I do think my more generalist background helps me in that way, helping students be prepared to join the clinical ranks. Time tells how successful that is. But, yes. You know, yes. That's so funny that you said that. And I love that you said that. Cause I was just thinking this morning, you know, it's so funny watching as my career has evolved. And I think I got so laser focused and went so far down this dysphagia rabbit hole and kind of yeah. just realized that I had neglected so many other areas of medical SLP. And I'm just like, crap, I, I need to keep up on aphasia and dysarthria and these other areas because my patient's depending on it because I am well, a speech pathologist. <laughs> right. So, well, you know, I think this is symptomatic of our field. Our yeah. field has grown and I don't mean numbers, I mean knowledge base, the, the knowledge base of what's available for people to learn and to become quote unquote experts in is just growing exponentially. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who wish they could do dysphagia and nothing else. And, you know, it's, it's not for me to say if that's good or bad or anything else, but patients also need these other services, whoever is going to be providing them. Right. And, you know, that's what we know. There's talk in the profession all the time about how the master's degree is not enough to prepare people. And, you know, I, I, I agree that there is a wide knowledge base that's needed to be competent in all these things that we're supposed to do for our patients. And I'm sure the same thing could be said for the schools, although that's not a population that I, or a setting where I, where I've ever worked, but you know, I'm sure their knowledge base has grown exponentially as well. So yeah. it remains to be seen how this will all develop in the future. Yes. <laughs> so what, what kind of brings us here today and what I, what I love about you, Pam, is really your voice for advocating, getting our student clinicians and our clinicians to advocate for their patients and kind of a big piece of what I do. So uh, yes. I know this whole talk kind of stemmed on a talk that you did a, a few years back, if you want to elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, yes, this was at our state convention, and together with a colleague, uh, Jim Lemma, who I've done a lot of presentations with in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Speech and Hearing Association, Speech Language Hearing Association, uh, we like to do clinically oriented presentations. Um, we try to submit one every year. And last year's convention, we did one that we, we called it What's Your Lens? And it was based on advocacy and instrumentation. But the idea being that, you know, there's a lot of effort being put out there and it's important effort and it's good effort to get people to advocate for instrumental assessments. It's kind of interesting how we've gone full circle for a while. If you go back maybe 15, 20 years, the people were saying, you know, oh, you have to get videos and everyone. And then that kind of changed. I don't know how much of that was financially driven, probably quite a bit. And then we learned more about what we couldn't see, um, that you have to be able to see the bolus trajectory. You can't predict a bedside. Like, you know, we kind of knew that, but we thought we were so good at guessing things <laughs> and uh, realized that we're not. 
And so it's kind of come full circle again where we're back to where we started 20 years ago. It's, you know, it's kind of like if you, if, if you're tired of bell bottoms, put them away for a while and they'll come back into fashion. Um, but I think this time when we come around looking at instrumental assessment, it's something that there is a clear evidence-based need for it right now. Whereas a lot of times in, in the past some things were maybe practice patterns were proposed and they didn't have the evidence to support them because the field was so new, but now we know that. So as we try to get people and, you know, your efforts are great here uh, along with many others in getting people to understand why we need instrumentals and giving them the tools they need to advocate to the people that they work with. It's really come to some people more than others that you need to have a different message for different people. And this is true for anything we do that you always need to consider your audience in what you are trying to convey. So, you know, I don't know how specific you would want me to get right now, but, you know, we could take a really general example. Now, let's say you're going to your professor because you are, you know, you're, you're having some issues and so you're going to be missing some class and you could go into, you know, all the reasons why you're having all these issues. And, you know, the professor just really wants to know how you're going to make up the work and what your plan is. And it's not like they're not sympathetic to your plate, but that's not what their concern is. So when you go visit your professor, you say, I'm having these issues with my family. I'm happy to um, talk about with this, but, but you know, I'm, I'm going to need to miss your class. And my plan for making up the work is I'm going to be doing this reading. I'd like to come see you before I go. I would like to come see you before I come back. I have written documentation for you. Just making sure it's okay. Because you've addressed your message to the person who, in the way, to the person, and here I go, you've addressed your message to that person using the information that they need to get the piece of communication completed so the message goes through. And then you're successful with that. Whereas if you go into your professor and you're, and I don't want to use the word whining because students often have legitimate complaints, but it can come across as, you know, oh, I have all these things, it's so terrible, and I, you know, I just really need you to work with me here. It's not as effective. So yes. you always need to consider what your audience needs to hear, especially when it's targeted communication about something as important as a medical test that's going to cost some money to someone. Um, that's a whole other issue. Um, but you need to be able to formulate your rationale for the conversation you're having to the person and meet them where their perspective lies. Yes. So that's kind of how it all evolved, that you have to have different kinds of conversations with different people. Yes. Yes. So, you know, what would you say, Pam, to that brand brand new grad who's just scared crapless to approach this topic with <laughs> with an administrator who just always gives a hard no? Um, well, I would want to know first what the climate of the facility is. Are there people in your facility who you know are on your side, who agree with you. And so let's say, for example, that this fearful clinician has spoken with nursing and the director of nursing, um, and the nurse seems to understand. So that probably is from the clinical perspective. I need to have this information so that I can get the information I need to plan a program of rehabilitation so that I can help these patients that will help these patients get better. All right, so when you had these conversations with nursing, dear clinician, you're speaking to the nurse in terminology and with a focus that the nurse understood and that was important to her. Probably if you moved up the administrative ladder, there, the financial piece would start to come in. 
So in having the conversation with the scary administrator, you have to think about what administrators care about. You know, they have an awful lot of concerns on their plate. You being happy may not be one of them, especially on any given day. Whether that's good or bad doesn't really matter. The reality is you have a conversation that you need to have so that you can get something accomplished. So, you know, I'd ask the clinician to just, before you start planning your conversation, think about what's important to an administrator, and I would write them down. So if I'm going to meet with the administrator, administrators are concerned about budgets and money. Administrators are concerned about budgets and money. They're concerned about regulatory compliance. They don't want problems. They want things to just move smoothly. And, you know, there are new regulations in healthcare, whereas if somebody is discharged too soon and they're sent back, you know, depending on what, what level of care we're talking about here, it's not necessarily such a good reflection on your facility's care if someone is sent out with complications. So, you know, keeping patients as healthy as possible is also just good for administrators for their reputation in the community. So if they can get the word out, word of mouth is always better than any kind of advertisement that patients come to our facility, they get great care, they get better, then other families will want to send patients there. So now I would probably think of the two or three items that for this particular administrator in this particular building seem to be the most important. And if the director of nursing was already on my side, I'd ask for her assistance. You know, you know this person. You know, here are my thoughts. I need to have this conversation with this real scary guy. And um, I'm not really sure what to say. So here are my thoughts. And I, and I would kind of lay the content out um, before just going into the door and knocking on his door, going in cold, because that's scary. And you just don't know what they're going to what they're going to say in response. Is that something that do you guys teach? Do you guys have an advocacy piece? Do you teach your students kind of how to have those dialogues? We don't have a like a separate course in this, but one of the things I do in my class all the time, and, and it really stems not just from advocacy, but it's talking about conversations. Uh, we're very fortunate at Bloomsburg that we have two full semesters of swallowing. Oh, um, yeah, so that, that's that, right. I forgot you guys yeah, did. That's a change we made about, geez, I've been there 15 years, about 13 years ago. That's so and great. It, it wasn't that hard to do because I taught all the adult curriculum. So, yeah. you know, I wasn't going to offend anyone. Yeah. So, what do you mean? You're taking my course. Well, yeah. I just reorganized Sure, I'll things. teach another one. Sure, why not? <laughs> um, <laughs> but what we, we have, we spend time talking about how the field has evolved. And that when you go out on a placement, an externship, a CF, whatever it might be, you really don't have any way of knowing where on that kind of continuum, that progression of how this person practices, you don't know where they fall. And when you're a student or a CF, you're in a very interesting position of being evaluated by this person. But you probably, since you're fresh out of grad school, you probably have more current knowledge than they do. So you have to be very careful. How are you going to have these conversations? So one of the things we do in class all the time is, all right, so let's say that, you know, you have this supervisor who makes a recommendation and you know that that is not best practice right now. You have choices. How are you going to approach the conversation that you're just going to agree with her and have this hopefully bother your conscience for a while? Um, are you going to say, um, no, that's not right. In which case you come across as a young know-it-all who's not de- demonstrating good professional 
communication skills, or are you going to think of a way to have this conversation that demonstrates that you respect this person's experience, you respect this person's uh, role in the relationship that you have, but to generate a conversation where you and this person sit down and talk about how practice evolves and why, in fact, perhaps a different way of approaching the case might work. And it's always helpful to have references available. Yes. It's all in how you approach it. It absolutely is. Yeah. When you barge in like gangbusters, it's like, I know more than you do. I'm yes. not cool. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or, you know, and, and I think a lot of it is personality. There are some people who are comfortable having those kinds of conversations. Uh, and there are others who are not. And, and a lot of it relies on a relationship. You might not be able to do that your first week on a job or on a placement. It may take getting a comfort level with that person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you guys at least coach or teach, touch on that. Because <laughs> I just feel like there's so many students that get out there and they're like, I had no idea that, you know, everyone wasn't practicing at the top of our license or as evidence-based mm-hmm. as possible. And, you know, it's 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 hard to get the knowledge out there, but we're, we're doing our part. <laughs> and one of the pat phrases that I use, I use it in class a lot is that, you know, even when you're done, um, so let's say you graduate in May. By next May, there will be new information. Yes. And it just, you have a responsibility to keep up with that. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not blaming the clinicians in the field all the time. Yeah, there are some that don't really seem to bother to keep up, but a lot of people have, they, they desire to do the best job they can. They really do. Um, life happens, you know, yep. and they have families and they have children and they have houses and there's activities and, you know, for someone with a job like me, you know, I'm expected to keep up. They pay me to read. Yeah. I mean, I'm, not, not really. It's not like I have long yeah. reading time. That's yeah. not how it works. But there's an expectation that I will keep up with things and that the course will be revised. That's part of the job. So, you know, I totally understand and appreciate that. But that's not how everybody else's job necessarily is. So, you know, you have to kind of let them know that it does not take long to become old school. And think about the people that you've dealt with that you would call old school. You, know, you don't want to be like that. You right. want to be the person who is kept up, who knows what's going on, who can then speak to the historical issues. You know, you're right. We did used to practice that way. We've learned so much in our field in the last, you know, choose a number, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and the other thing I tell students is that, you know, sorry to have to tell you this, folks, but you know, when you join our profession, you are joining all the things that we did in the past that weren't good. So when I say we did this, you know, we created some of these practice patterns yeah. that we now know aren't evidence-based. You know, you had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. It's what we did. Um, we now know better. You have now joined the we. So you are now part of trying to fix it. So you have to know what's happened. Yeah. You have to know how things have evolved. I think that's such a good point. Cause I think if you think of any profession, like you think, I mean, you think of medicine, you think of any doctors, all professions have evolved, you know, research mm-hmm. is constantly occurring. So it's just, it's so funky to think that some of us are so stuck in the stone age when really we all professions should be ex- expected to progress. You know, you don't expect the doctor to be pra- practicing the same way he did 40 years ago. You know, you expect him right. to stick, you know, keep up with the latest research and use the latest medicine that's available to him. So I just think it's so... I think one of the issues that happens in our field, um, I don't know that it's necessarily so much a difference in methodology. 
I think people are much more willing to accept that instrumentation is a good thing and we should do it. You know, I, I don't think that that's, but there's this underlying basic knowledge base that I know I put out there and I know a lot of my colleagues put out there that you have to know the complexities of how people either get sick or don't get sick. Yep. And, and even when you do that, when you understand that, you know, not everyone who aspirates gets sick, that creates its own little sub argument problem yep. that you have to be prepared to deal with. So, all right, let me pose it to you this way. You know, we need to do instrumental assessment so that we can plan appropriate rehabilitation programs so that our patients have the best swell as possible. Then somebody says, well, you also just said that not everyone who aspirates gets sick. So why is this such a big concern? Well, it's, you have to understand the big picture of this all. Um, and, and I really felt when I, you know, earlier on when I was developed, the change the curriculum, you know, if I started talking about how, you know, not everyone who aspirates gets sick, aspiration is not this word that we need to fear. I found that students who are new to this, I don't want to call them concrete, but they hear something and they focus on it. Right. I had to come out, start out, come out and start saying very directly, I am not advocating opening someone's mouth, turning their head back and pouring fluid down their throat because it's not that aspiration doesn't matter. There, there are gray areas. So, right, not everyone who aspirates gets sick, but aspiration is something that has to happen in order for you to get aspiration pneumonia. The questions are what you are going to aspirate. And while not everyone who aspirates gets sick, it still would be a good idea to maximize someone's swallowing ability. So probably rather than the brick walls between all these facts, we have blurry boundaries. Yeah, People don't like blurry boundaries. And then you throw patients' rights and wishes on top of that, and you've got a whole other area that everyone has to navigate. So, you know, your audience constantly changes. Yeah. yeah. And, and how you're going to pre- present that information. Yeah. I think it's a real hard thing for people who've been at it for a while. It is. Not just- it is. It is. What, what do you say, Pam, to those, like, those new grads that, you know, want to learn all this new information, but they don't have a budget or their, you know, facility doesn't allow them to take any continuing education courses or anything like that? Yeah, you know, there's a problem with with um, lack of access to resources for education. So, you know, there's this these great tools called journal articles that they make you read in college, <laughs> and um, there are people who are willing to look these things up and share resources. Um, you can check with your library and see if you can have alumni access. Um, you can find in medical libraries that they'll often obtain journals for you. There are lots and lots of resources available online. Um, your podcasts are one. Um, there are other um, podcasts available. Um, there are blog posts available. The only issue you have to be careful of when you're using anything from social media or online sources is that your administrators might want, uh, depending on depending on the administrator, you know, because if I cite a blog post, well, let me put it another way. If a student cites the blog post in a paper, like, you know, that's not evidence. Right, right. So now you guys have show notes. So there's where the evidence is. So you don't cite the blog. You say, well, you know, I listened to this blog and there's all kinds of evidence. And here's the evidence. Yes. So, yes. you know, you, you go back, go back to your original sources because that's what's been peer reviewed. Yes. And use that to structure your argument. So, you know, you've got these different levels of how information is disseminated. You've got your basic research articles, which are continually coming out, which can be hard to get. 
there is more of a focus now on open access, but you know, those, they're free to the readers are not free to the publishers. So people to the, excuse me, to the authors. Um, so people don't necessarily have as much easy access to journal articles as you do when you're a student. So you can try to work toward improving that access. You can use the free resources that are out there and always go to the original sources, you know, as helpful as blogs are, as helpful as podcasts and, and webcasts are for getting information out, um, always cite the original sources, your, your published resources to people like administrators. And when you're, if you're having to write a justification, but you always want to go back to those primary sources because that's where the peer review is. And that, that's what will give you more credibility in the profession. Yes. I would also suggest that you um, become active in your state association. And that's generally a, our, our state convention is several days. You can become active in the program committee and you can have speakers come to your state convention that you want to hear. You can make suggestions. Um, it's just a great way to network at your state level. And that gives you access to people that might help you locate information as well. Um, there are group discounted rates for some of these courses that are out there um, that can help save some bucks. Maybe you can strike some kind of deal with your supervisor, you know, in terms of, you know, if I can get this continuing ed money in exchange for something, I don't know what, I don't know what all corporations can do. Um, but I, I think the quest for information, if you give up when they say no, that now that means I don't need any more information because my boss says I'm not going to pay for it. Right. That's, that's shirking your responsibility. I'm not saying the boss is correct for doing what they're doing, but, um, you know, that you have your own ethical responsibility to try to keep up with that information. Yeah. I think that's what it all comes down to. You know, it's like everybody kind of says, well, I don't have access to this or I don't have the money to do that or I don't have that. And it's like, well, be resourceful. Don't just say, no, I yes. can't, you know, reach out to someone. I, I know I feel like every researcher I have on here that has written a paper has always said, please email me. I'm happy to give you, yeah. send you the paper. You know, I've yeah. never had a researcher say, no, don't email me. I won't send it to you. You know, right. <laughs> so I, yeah. And, and I think it's important to remember that these people, they're, they're people, yeah. you know, just like you, <laughs> just like me, they're people. Um, and they're very happy to share what they've done. And, you know, uh, the things that I've written when people have emailed that, it's like you immediately like, well, they want my work. Yes. <laughs> so you send, so you send it. And, and, you know, it was interesting. I, I was at a conference in New Jersey. I, I spoke there and somebody from the audience came up and they said that I'd sent them a study. I did that. I responded. I sent them a study that I had done something like 15 years ago. And she said it ended up being basically the focus of my thesis. And it, like, that's kind of, that's kind of cool. Yeah. You know, that yeah, sort totally of thing cool. happens. So, yeah. you know, on whatever scale you are working, whatever scale you are practicing, never underestimate the impact you can have on another person. Absolutely. Well, one of the assignments that I do have in the class is to have them, I have a bunch of them. One of them is to develop uh, this very thing that, that you want to either request continuing education or you want to request a piece of equipment or you want to request some specialized training and that you need to come up with a written argument that you will give to your direct supervisor, to an area manager, and to the CEO. 
So let's say, for example, that you'd like to purchase equipment so that you can start doing fees studies in your facility. So you have to prepare a written document. And so there will be one written document that will have one focus that goes to your direct supervisor. And that one would probably have to do with better clinical outcomes, more quick response on assessment orders. You wouldn't have to wait 5 million years to get any of these tests done because you would have that available to you immediately in your environment. If you, your company has multiple facilities, you could be the mobile person who would travel to those facilities. So your entire area could benefit great clinical outcomes for your patients because you would have that information much more quickly. You're going to an area manager. It's not like they don't care about patient care. They do, but talk to them about the money it would save for them. That if in fact you obtain this equipment, there would be more rapid turnaround time so that patients would be able to receive more treatment. Um, length of stay or length of time in treatment um, would help their outcomes. So your outcome data would look better, that they may be able to negotiate some you know, different rates for different contract services because your outcomes are better. Um, and it gives you a better reputation so you get more referrals. From a higher level executive, you can go into the regulations even on a Medicare level um, about standards of care and how this puts you in full compliance, puts you on a, makes you an equal with some of the other facilities around that might perhaps offer this service so you will not lose business to these other companies that are providing this service that we can do this here. So it's not a different argument better to do this. So rather than just going and saying, you know, we want to do fees, can we get the equipment? Well, that doesn't tell me anything. Right, right. So what does this level person need to know? Right. Um, and, and, you know, you can approach that from a patient level too. Sometimes patients don't want to have instrumental assessments. I mean, they've heard things. They've heard that, well, if I go out for this test, I'm going to come back on a feeding tube. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want to have this test. If I have this test, then you're going to put me on that glop that my neighbor's on. And you know, I don't want that. And so, you know, whereas to the nurse, we need to get this test done so that we can develop an appropriate plan of care. Well, that's true for the patient too, but you wouldn't say it that way. Right. Say, so, you know, Mr. Jones, you know, I understand your concerns and maybe that you've seen that happen. Let me tell you how this really works. We go out for this test, it's going to tell us more than I can ever see sitting here next to you, what's going on inside your throat when you swallow. Then you'll have information so you can make a decision about how you would like this handled. And and that's a whole different way of approaching it. Knowledge is power. So when you have more knowledge about what this test does for whoever the stakeholder is, then they can use that information to plan the treatment you know, and so for patients, it's what you would like to have done for nursing it so we can minimize complications. And certainly, of course, follow patient with you because everybody should be concerned about that. Yeah. And, well, and I love what you said too. It is just that we have to tailor it to the stakeholder. But I think going back a few minutes, you know, almost taking that 50,000 foot view of the entire patient, you know, if we just go yeah. to the administrator and say, well, I need this equipment so that I can view hyolaryngeal excursion, you know, that doesn't mean jack squat to him. You know, we like, as you said in the beginning, it's about how we are going to help the patient, how we are going to help the patient as a person, help improve their outcomes so that this facility gets a good reputation and we keep getting more patients. Yeah. And, and the big picture thinking helps, you know, in a lot of different ways. You know, I, I have heard 
you know, personal stories and, and ones that I've read that where I didn't know the people where administrators complain to a therapist who's asking, you know, requesting instrumental assessments. Well, you know, the person who is here before you never asked for so many. How come you need all these different tests to do your job and that person didn't? And, you know, it can be very easy when, I won't even say when you're young and new, it can just be hard sometimes to hear that kind of criticism or implied criticism yeah. because, yeah, I think a lot of us are sensitive people and we have an administrator say to us, you know, like, why do you need all this when nobody else needed it? With the implication being, you know, what's wrong with you? How right. come you right. need it? Um, and if, if we go on that first emotional impression, then we start getting defensive. But if we take a step back and think about, all right, what's his perspective on this situation? Why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because he doesn't want problems. And now he's viewing this as a problem. So I need to frame this as a way that will help solve his problem. That, you know, in fact, we know a lot more about swallowing than we did at that time. And having this information available allows me to give your residents better care because I won't be guessing. 15 years ago, all we could do is guess. We thought we were pretty good at guessing, but now we know how poor our guesswork really was. And we can do much better care if we have access to this information. So, you know, even though it's easy, I think, for us as people to make it all about us, it's really not. But that's hard at first. Yeah. It's hard to have, and maybe for some people it never gets easier, but it's necessary when you're advocating to step out of your comfort zone and and have those tough conversations. That's why preparation, making a list and knowing what you want to talk about is, I think, really good practice. I mean, it's like we do script training for people with aphasia. Scripts can help clinicians too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tell people that all the time. I'm like, figure out what you want to say first before you even go in there, you know. Mm-hmm. Have your have your references, have your sources lined up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, I guess this is a nerd alert. I was on the debate team <laughs> in high school, <laughs> and I liked it because, aside from the fact that I've always been a nerd, um, I, <laughs> I I liked having the need to have you had to have sources to back up anything you said, and you were going to be questioned, and you had to be prepared to answer those questions. So, I mean, it was really good training for some of this. Not because it had anything to do with swallowing at that point; it certainly didn't. But just kind of the mind frame of you know, yes, you we like to think of ourselves as being the expert, but that means different things to different people. Yep. You know, am I an expert to my patient because I've read a lot? Well, no, he's going to perceive me as an expert if pragmatically I appear to be meeting his needs when I'm in that room with him and interacting with him. Um, that's not going to build confidence with my administrator who will view me as an expert if I understand what impact what I do has on him. Right. My director of nursing will think I'm an expert if I have an appreciation of what I do and how it affects nursing care and those outcomes. So we have complicated job and taking that step back and seeing different perspectives, I think helps us meet our colleagues where they are. Absolutely. Yep. We've got to meet everyone halfway. And if you or your facility is interested in purchasing a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies, please consider contacting our sponsor, that's NDOHD, NDOHD. Uh, You can reach out to them at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. They combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. 
So www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration, and they would be more than happy to help you with calculating the cost effectiveness for your facility. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. But, you know, somewhere along the line, money became evil. You know, I, I have this on here, you know, that everybody has a viewpoint and they need to be heard. And, and that's very true. And somewhere along the line, it became an evil thing for any entity to worry about what things cost. Because, you know, we're giving people where, you know, we don't care about money. But, you know, when people say that you know, they shouldn't worry about the finances. Well, in part, finances are... You know, they're accepting insurance money. They've accepted the responsibility to do whatever patients need. But, you know, and this is another part of this whole big picture thinking that facilities, companies need to make enough money to be able to pay you salary and benefits enough that you will choose to continue to work for them and that you won't leave and go work for another one. Um, and so when people say, you know, I'm not really comfortable talking about finances and money with these people. Well, that's part of the big picture. That's really part of how it happens. I know you have a lot of resources available for people so they they can appreciate, learn, um, and be able to have that conversation. I think it's hard for people to get comfortable doing that because we're kind of not, people people don't like healthcare being a business. They they don't, they they don't want to be part of that problem. And it is a problem, but we're in that problem. Yeah. So, you know, I do think that just thinking about it and understanding it and accepting it, even if you don't like it, helps you have those conversations. I think a lot of people are much more comfortable talking about what patients need rather than what the economics of a company might benefit from. Yeah. Um, but if you're going to have successful conversations, you really need to be able to have it from both perspectives. Yeah. I think as we said, meeting the administrators halfway and if their language is dollars and cents, then speak their language. And, and that they're not bad people for right. thinking that way. It's right. their job to right. think that way. Right. They have to think that way. Right. So, and we're not going to change their minds. We're not going to change their perspective, nor should we, because it's their job to see to the financial solvency of the place. Now, there's a reason we're not administrators. And there's a reason some people go into private practice and that some people don't. So some people like that sort of thing and they gravitate toward those jobs. That's good. We need people to do that. And so those of us, you know, and I would be one of those people, I'd be a horrible private practitioner. <laughs> be a really, oh, horrible. I'm a good sled dog. Just, you know, let me just go right along yeah. and just do my thing. <laughs> yeah, I make a really good sled dog because, you know, I don't worry about, you know, being the be all, the end all. I have to figure out everything that's going to work. I see the big picture. You know, I'm, I'm kind of the generalist, the also ran. Like, here's how this all can work. We can work together. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.